Well, good morning. I count it a privilege and a blessing to be able to share the word with you all this morning again. The last time I spoke, we were in Romans chapter 3, discussing Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone, and uh, especially as it was covered in the Protestant Reformation historically. So today I'll be preaching on a subject that has, again, been historically linked to justification by faith alone, and that is the source of Christian authority, namely the Scriptures. As soon as Luther and Calvin began preaching against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church of their day on justification by faith alone, they were immediately challenged. They were challenged by claims to, again, an interpreting office of the church. How can you, just mere men, interpreting the word privately by yourselves, contradict the church, the teachings of the church? And again, the cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone serve as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. And this was the standard by which the reformers, uh, again, brought to light, again, this ancient doctrine of justification by faith alone. Covering the doctrine of Scripture and its application, of course, is a little daunting in a single sermon, yet I think there's great benefit in speaking to it all at once. Uh, so if you have a pen and paper, I would encourage you to just jot down the general outline so you can refer to it as you go. But if you will, turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter as our text this morning. Second Timothy 3. And if you will, stand for the reading of God's word. Paul writes to Timothy, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power. Keep away from such men as these, for among them are those who enter households and take captive weak women, weighed down with sins, being led on by various desires, always learning and never able to come to a full knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, disqualified in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress. For their folly will be obvious to all, just as also theirs was. But you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of, out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you. Continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray over our text this morning. Our righteous and holy God, we need your spirit this morning. As we come to your word, let me handle it faithfully, proclaim it fully, and cherish it sincerely. Drive out all faulty assumptions that we may bring to your text so that we can understand it correctly. I pray not only for correct interpretation, Lord, but for correct application. Let us not view your word in a cold and academic way, but help us find in it streams of living water. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. You can be seated. So, looking back at our text... In verse 1, Paul writes, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 
So at the outset of the passage, we really do have some difficulty in identifying the last days that Paul is referring to. An appropriate question to ask would be the last days of what, of course. And this could be answered in a few different ways. It would be helpful to see how this phrase is used throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. So let's survey some of those other passages. In Acts chapter 2, In Acts chapter 2, picking up in verse 14, Acts 2, 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Again, remember the context. This is the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So he's saying this, what was spoken by the prophet Joel, is what is happening before you right now at Pentecost. Notice again, the miracles which were occurring were a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, and thus the apostles and those who were receiving the Spirit were in some sense part of the last days, as Paul, or excuse me, as the author of Acts is referring to it. So in Hebrews chapter 1, we have another example. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the worlds. The author of Hebrews is telling us that there is a uh, period in which God spoke to the world by his Son, the first century, right? And those were referred to as these last days. He says these last days, of course, because he's a part of them. God the Father spoke through his Son in the first century, and, the, and thus the last days at least must be inclusive of the first century. The last example we'll look at is in James 5. James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasure in the last days. Speaking to the rich of his own day, James tells them that they have stored up treasures in the last days. So again, the times in which the people that received a letter from James were living were the last days. So from this evidence we've surveyed, there are probably two plausible meanings anyway, I think, for the phrase last days. It could mean either one, the last days of human history, which began in the days of the apostles and continues until Christ's second coming. That would be the last era of redemptive history, let's say, and thus it could be called the last days, or the last days of the old covenant system, which was coming to a close at the time of the writing of the New Testament. We see a little bit of that in Hebrews 8.13. But whatever way we want to go with this, it doesn't matter for today's sermon too much, the one thing that's obvious is that when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's warning him about times that will come in Timothy's life. Notice in verse 5, uh, of a, back in our text in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy that he ought to keep away from such men as these. Timothy was going to experience all sorts of heinousness in his day. Evil men and imposters, again, will proceed from bad to worse. But Paul doesn't leave Timothy without help. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to be a Christian in the first century. The Lord Jesus has just recently ascended, and as he was ascending, he gave gifts to men, as we read in Ephesians 4. He gave them apostles and teachers. And these apostles and teachers were to guard and teach sound doctrine to the next generation. So Paul, Peter, John, and the rest were active in the churches, teaching and preaching the word of God with a special apostolic authority. They were Christ's mouthpieces. 
When religious controversy arose, as we see in Acts 15, for example, the Jerusalem Council, the apostles decided that dispute with a certain apostolic authority. When churches had grave moral issues, such as we read about in 1 Corinthians, the apostles, again, spoke into that with special apostolic authority. And now imagine your Timothy. We read in 1 Timothy 4 that he was a young elder with much training and progress still ahead of him in his ministry. Paul stationed him in Ephesus to ensure that the words of sound doctrine and faithful teaching were maintained, again, in the rise of false teachings that were becoming a plague on the church. Timothy, I'm sure, felt a heavy weight on his shoulders. He had been entrusted with shepherding the flock of God and doing it faithfully, guarding them from wolves. And as Timothy gets his second letter from Paul, he reads this, 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Suddenly, I'm sure, the young Timothy realized that his mentors and teachers, those who had a special authority from God to speak sound doctrine, were growing old and about to pass away. And the main ground of stability in the early church, the apostles themselves, were all about to be gone. And young Timothy and his fellow elders would be the people holding up the bulwark of sound doctrine. Again, an immense weight to be on a young man's shoulders. But not only would the elders be without living apostles to appeal to, they would be without apostles, again, in times that were growing increasingly perilous. In describing the times to come, Paul holds nothing back. The men that rise up will be completely hostile to the gospel message. They'll live lives to prove it. But Paul himself... Uh, during the daunting words, again, that he's speaking to Timothy about these perilous times to come, seems to slow down in verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. But you, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. You, Timothy, are faithful. You, in verse 14, continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And he directs Timothy again to the scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the midst of the perilous times to come, amidst the plague of false teachings to come, Paul directs Timothy to the sure source of apostolic truth, the scriptures. He doesn't direct young Timothy to pope or counsel, but to the very words of the living God in which they can equip him for every good work. This will be Timothy's stronghold in days of trouble. It's as if Paul, seeing Timothy frightened and anxious, lays his hands on the young man's shoulders and says, Hand these, uh, handle these faithfully and all will be well. He directs him again to the source of truth, to the source that is the scriptures. The reason we're in the book of 2 Timothy, by the way, in a series on discipleship through the Gospels, is because I want to take a step back for a moment and at the outset establish how we who are making disciples ought to handle the scriptures we ought to teach others and how we ought to handle the scriptures and teach others to handle the scriptures. If you're taking notes, I want to look at three characteristics of scripture that are taught in our passage this morning that I think we need to get straight before we go out and disciple people with the scriptures. First, we have the authority of Scripture. Second, we have the sufficiency of Scripture. And third, we have the clarity of Scripture. We'll talk about all of these in relation to 2 Timothy chapter 3. But we're also going to look at the teachings of Jesus on the subject as we go along. Looking back at 2 Timothy 3, we see in verse 16 an interesting hyphenated word, God breathed. 
when speaking about the origin and source of Scripture, Paul says that all Scripture, yes, all of it, is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God himself. Some of your translations, if you have the King James, for example, will say inspired or given by inspiration. However, as my professor Keith Matheson pointed out to me, inspiration really isn't the best word here. In fact, the word here is much stronger than inspiration. The word theonoustos, inspirate, means to breathe into. But Paul isn't saying here that God breathed into the words of men and made those words scripture, but rather the scriptures themselves have their origin and source with God, and thus they carry with them a certain grounds of authority over us. They speak into our lives in an authoritative way. One of the most common ways God is referred to in scripture is as Lord. A Lord is a person exercising absolute ownership rights. He owns us. Because God created us and sustains us, he has authority over us. As the psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's, as well as its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's, we are the Lord's, and because this is so, he speaks as one with a certain legitimate claim on us. Add to this that we Christians have been bought by the blood of Christ, and we can see why Paul in Romans 1 calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. A slave. He is our master and we are his slaves, and thus we must listen to his voice. Now, there are many in our day who will hold that the Bible is without error. There are many who will even say that the Bible contains the very words of God, but many of these same people refuse to respond to the word as if it had any authority over us. While the scriptures may be read, its teachings are set aside, its laws are ignored, and its doctrines are hardly treasured. This is what Joel Beakey calls practical atheism. You might believe in God. You really might. But if you don't respond to the word as if it is God speaking to you, then you are, at least in practice, just an atheist. There's no difference. But if we understand scripture aright, if we understand what a glorious gift we have in the authoritative word of God, it should begin to mold us. It should begin to shape us into Christ-likeness. I once asked a woodworker, I saw this beautiful little duck he made out of basswood or something like that, and I asked him, how'd you make that? What was your plan exactly? He said, well... I just shaved away everything that didn't look like a duck, right? That's a good enough answer. Well, in the same way as a worker of wood shaves away all excesses until he arrives at his desired form, so too should we be so molded, so shaped by the word of God that all the excesses of our sin and false doctrine are cast off until we arrive throughout the course of our lives, reaching toward the end of Christ-likeness. This is the job of the scriptures. This is why we encounter, behold, the scriptures. is because they, through the word, we are transformed into the image of Christ. But back to the question of authority. Reason with me for a minute. If the scripture really is the word of God, and God is who he says he is, can there be any error in scripture? Surely the answer would be no. But my authority alone isn't sufficient to establish this question. Let's open uh, to the words of Jesus here in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I would hope that all who call themselves Christians would want to have the same view of Scripture that Jesus has. That seems reasonable. So let's look closely at how Jesus handles the Scriptures. John chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and said into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, there's a lot going, into this passage, going on in this passage that would be worthy of looking into in more depth. But for now, 
Look how Jesus argues with the Jews of his day. He had just finished speaking about the redemption he and the Father together accomplish and the salvation of his people, and the Jews pick up stones to stone him. A mere man cannot forgive sins. They pick up stones to stone him, and Jesus begins to cleverly talk his way out of the situation. Part of his reasoning with them includes him quoting from the Old Testament and noting that the scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. In other words, it is a sure standard that we can appeal to in controversy. So clearly, Jesus believed that the Old Testament had a binding and inerrant authority, and if we wish to be his disciples, we should have the same view of Scripture as he does. For the Christian, this ought to be an enormous comfort. In all the world around us, we see people clinging to the words of mere men and desperately grasping for any stability they can find. But for us, the truth is always readily at hand. We can pick up the Scriptures and read. Something I do want to note, however... Before we move on to sufficiency is a misconception that often uh, accompanies the doctrine of authority and Scripture's authority. There are some preachers and teachers who faithfully handle the Word of God, but they do so in such a way that takes away from the sweetness of the truths preached. But let me say here and now that our job as those making disciples is not to get someone to swallow the truths of Scripture like cough syrup. We aren't trying to get people to confront the cruelties of life like Stoics. That's not our job. We're to present Christ and his word for what it is, a precious revelation. If you've ever had the privilege of watching someone you know be converted out of their sins and grow into Christian maturity, one of the most enjoyable aspects of that transition is watching that person, as they grow, be conformed to the word. Not only are they conformed to the word, but their very affections are conformed to the word. Not only do they read the scriptures and acknowledge what they say, but they begin to rejoice in the scriptures. They gain a holy excitement for the things of God and long with their whole souls to grow more in conformity with his words. In scripture, we do have an authoritative word, that's to be sure, but it's a gloriously authoritative word. It's a word to be treasured above all else. But on top of this, not only do we have an authoritative word from God, but our next point, we have a sufficient word. The Westminster Confession lays out sufficiency in the following words. It's kind of old language, but we'll translate it here. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. To put that into today's language, everything you need to know about how to be saved and how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is found in the Scripture. Take on uh, one of those at a time. First, the scriptures plainly teach us the way of salvation. Let's look back for a moment at our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And picking up in verse 14, we read, But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, born into a believing Jewish family, was taught the scriptures from a very young age. We read in 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, rather, that his mother and grandmother were Christians who taught Timothy the ways of God. Note especially that as Timothy was growing up, he didn't have the New Testament, right? When Paul's speaking about scripture here, especially in verse 16, the primary scriptures he's referring to are the Old Testament scriptures. Even without the New Testament then, the way of salvation was plainly laid out. We read in Genesis 15, where Abraham simply believes God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But as the New Testament revelation begins to unfold, and I don't think anyone would argue this, the way and plan of salvation becomes even more crystal clear. 
Now, at this point, we really do have to introduce the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture because sufficiency and clarity go hand in hand. By sufficiency, we're saying that what we need to know is present in the Scriptures. But by clarity, we mean that we can actually understand what is present in the Scriptures. So, by a faithful illumination of the Spirit, we are able to understand the way of salvation. But look back at 15. Both the Scriptures contain the message of salvation. Timothy is saying that, uh, or rather Paul is saying to Timothy, that you are able to be saved through this message, correct? That's sufficiency. And that Timothy was able to understand that message, right, and respond to it. That's clarity. The way of salvation is plain. We read in the book of John, for example, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus likewise says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The scriptures labor to show us the way of salvation. That we, if we have a living and believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that gospel, we can find eternal life thereby. In regards to living a godly life, the scriptures are sufficient to teach us this as well. That doesn't mean that uh, there aren't some moral questions that are harder than others. I'm not saying that. But it does mean that God has sufficiently revealed his moral law in the scriptures that with enough diligence we can come to know how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Let's look back at our text again. In verse 16, 2 Timothy 3.16, we read all scripture is breathed, uh, God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, he says, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. These words, thoroughly equipped, as many commentators will point out, carry with them the idea of sufficiency. If a teacher were to say, for example, that the instructions on the board are sufficient to equip a student in the filling out of the assignment, let's say, or even if they said they, are, uh, they thoroughly equip the student to complete the assignment, what they're saying is that the instructions are sufficient. And in the same way, when Paul tells Timothy that the words of God, the very God-breathed scriptures that he possesses, are able to thoroughly equip him for every good work, what's he saying? He's saying that the scriptures are sufficient to equip young Timothy. In the same way, when Paul says that the scriptures thoroughly equip the man of God, he's saying that just, uh, just as, like I said, the teacher's instructions sufficiently equip the student, so too the scriptures can sufficiently equip us. But moving on to our next point. We've already introduced it, of course. It's the doctrine of the clarity of scripture. We noted already from our passage that the clarity of scripture can be found in verse 15, where Paul speaks of the ability of the scriptures to communicate the message of salvation. Let's look back at that verse. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the scriptures have a certain capability, a certain ability to communicate to us with clarity. Think about it for a moment. According to our text, why did God inspire scripture in the first place? Or at least, what's the reason given in our text? God revealed himself in the scriptures, at least in part, to equip the man of God for every good work. Now, to be equipped by the scriptures, you'd think we'd need to be able to understand the scriptures, right? It seems pretty reasonable. So, if God desires to communicate effectively through the scriptures, can he do it? That's really the question. Does God have the ability to communicate with clarity? If God is the most perfect of beings, as the scriptures tell us that he is, and if he can do whatever he pleases, as the Psalms declare, then he can communicate effectively with the people he created. Is God so impotent? that he's a worse communicator than I am. I've been standing up here for a couple minutes, communicating to you all, 
And I assume that you understand, at least mostly, what I'm saying. That you understand what I'm trying to communicate to you. And I just happen to think that God is a better communicator than I am, right? But no doubt you'll hear this. Well, Austin, you know, that's your interpretation. You know, you have your interpretation, I have mine, and who's really to say who's right? It's kind of up for grabs, right? Anybody could be right. As if when the IRS, for example, tells that same person what they owe on their income tax the following year, he can just say, well, you know, you have your interpretation, I have mine, you know, who's to say who's right? No, they're not going to let that happen, especially when the government has a certain authority over you. I mean, I've tried to file my own taxes. It's kind of confusing. It's kind of hard. It takes, you know, some diligence, some hard work, and yet you're expected because you're given the tools necessary to complete the task, you're expected to be able to do it. No, I'm not saying that there aren't confusing portions of Scripture. Peter says as much, and he's an apostle. What I am saying is that God has the ability to communicate effectively enough that what he wants us to believe can be received by us, especially those things relating to salvation and godly living. We do have to apply ourselves to the text, of course. We do have to do some hard work. A.W. Pink once said, no verse of Scripture yields its meaning to a lazy people, and I think that's right. But think about how our Lord interacts with Scripture. How often do the Jews come to him and ask him uh, certain questions to trap him? And he says what? Have you not read? Or have you not read what was uh, spoken to you by God? And then he'll quote a Scripture sometimes that's 2,000 years old. Do you not understand these Scriptures that God gave to you, that he spoke to you? Now again, I don't want to act like every passage is just clear on the face of it. It's not true. But the Westminster Confession that I cited a moment ago, and I think the Scriptures teach... That those things regarding man's salvation, faith, and life, that is, godly living, God has given to us, and we are able to understand them, by the confession says, by a due use of ordinary means. That is, again, translating the kind of archaic language. God has given us certain tools to help us understand these things, and as long as we work diligently with these tools, we can understand. He's given us the ability to understand. Those tools include the Holy Spirit, which enlightens us. Our rational minds, of course, that God has given each one of us. And I think this one's overlooked, the church. God's given certain men gifts of teaching and preaching the word of God. They're called elders. And if you're in right relationship with the local church, as you should be, they are a tool given to you by God to come to understand the scriptures. We should consult these men. By the way, this would be, if you're talking, uh, discipling someone through the gospels, this would be a good time to point out the necessity of the local church. You need to be involved in the local church, in Christ's body, Nevertheless, let's recap for a moment. We learn from 2 Timothy 3, three things about Scripture. First, we read of its authority. Second, its sufficiency. And third, its clarity. Now, in regards to all these doctrines discussed, how should we as Christians be interacting with the Word in such a way that it begins to change our lives, that it begins to shape us? If we're only coming to the Scriptures to gain knowledge about God, we're coming to the Scriptures in vain. Yes, John 17, 3, of course, but this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Yes, we do have to know God, but we aren't coming to look for factual propositions about God. We don't just come to the scriptures to learn more and more and more facts. We come to know the living God. We come to the scriptures to know the living God through the scriptures. He's given them to us. He's given us his words so that we can come to know him. And again, so that he can thoroughly equip us for every good work. So, Joel Beakey gives three ways of using God's word as a means of transformation. And again, 
Uh, I am quoting from several men, and yes, these are mere men. They aren't authoritative like the Word of God is, but they are do helps to us. Again, I said being involved in the local church, that's important, but we also should listen to those men of God which have been, again, enlightened by the Spirit throughout history. So learning from certain men, Joel Beakey gives three ways of using God's Word as a means of transformation, and I'm going to add a fourth. First, we ought to read the Scriptures, of course. Second, I'll add that we ought to meditate on the Scriptures. Third, we ought to give diligence to absorb and learn from the word preached. And fourth, we ought to sing the scriptures. The most obvious of these four means of transformation, it seems, is the reading of the word, but it's also uh, one of the most important. If we want to be molded and shaped by the word of God, we have to be frequently exposed to it. If you leave it on the shelf, if you leave it over there in the corner, you're not going to be transformed by the word. If you're not constantly exposed to it, how can you be molded by it? There can be no transformation without exposure. It's sad to say, but true enough, that there are many in American evangelical churches, perhaps even people who are greatly involved in church life, who haven't disciplined themselves, let's say, to read through the Bible. They've committed their lives to following the Lord, and yet they treat his word lightly. They don't esteem it very highly. They don't esteem it as worthy of their regular meditation. Of course, problems can exist on the other end of the spectrum, I'm sure that there are those who have read the Bible, for example, dozens of times in their lives, and then they just set it aside, like they have no more to learn from it. But I'm not calling you, again, to read the Bible once or maybe 12 times. I'm calling it to make it your daily habit. Yes, you should read the whole Bible, but that's not the calling of the Christian life. The calling of the Christian life is to press on in the Word to know the living God. But on top of the frequency with which we should read the Scriptures, we need to make sure we read them effectively. I'll give three ways in which we might go about reading the word more effectively. And the first is that we read it prayerfully. The scriptures are a spiritual book, after all, and this being so, we need to rely on the Spirit for understanding. David prays this prayer in Psalm 119, starting in verse 17. Deal bountifully with your slave, that I might, keep and, uh, that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. I'm a sojourner in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. David, a holy man, begs God to reveal the truths of his word to him. In the same way, we ought to beg God for understanding when we come to this book. If we read without a spirit of prayerfulness, we come to the word forgetting our reliance on the one who must make these truths come alive in us. We were talking in the men's class several weeks ago about what it feels like in the Christian soul to go without prayer. What is that like? That's like a fish swimming out of water is what it should be like. But what does it feel like in our souls as Christians when we go without prayer? We become dependent and reliant on our own actions to get us through life rather than leaning and pressing on to the God who promises us in his word that he will sustain us to the end. Rather than looking to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we look to ourselves. When we don't pray, that's what we're doing. So we need to come to the scriptures. We need to come to gain understanding prayerfully. Second, we must read it widely. Looking back at our text in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, note that it's all Scripture that's God-breathed. If we want to be equipped by Scripture for every good work, we have to familiarize ourselves with all of Scripture. Again, the primary Scriptures Paul would be referring to at this point are the Old Testament Scriptures. So we need to be reading the law books to have our sin exposed, the historical books to see God's faithfulness to our fathers, the wisdom literature to gain understanding in the ways of the Lord, to read the prophetic literature to see God's jealousy, his covenant jealousy for his people, and so on and so forth. 
As Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written aforetime was written for our instruction, so that by perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's why the Scriptures are given to us. Third, we must read the Scriptures with an eye to self-examination. I once heard someone say, a Christian is defined as one who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. Right? We don't think about it in relation to our own lives. We think about it as, yes, these things, of course, are applicable, not to me, but yes, to everybody else. Right? No, we can't read the scriptures like this. You can't go along and say, man, I really would like it if so-and-so would read this part of scripture. I really would like it if they'd, uh, if they'd just hear this. Maybe I should send it to them, text it to them. No, when we come to God's word, more than anything else, we should be asking how to apply it to ourselves, to our own lives. I'm not talking about some sort of morbid or harmful introspection. I'm talking about reading in such a way that when you are confronted with your own sins in this book, you beg God for forgiveness and ask his mercy to help you change. If you're anything like me, confessing and confronting your sin isn't a pleasant thing at all. But it really is a grace. On the promises of the gospel, we read this in 1 John 1, nine. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that we need to be taking hold of every time we open this book. The second way to use this, uh, the word as a means of transformation is to meditate on the word. We have a tendency, of course, to act like reading our Bibles is just something we can check, you know, check the box, set it aside, we're done for the day. But that's not how God calls us to interact with the word. If we want to be transformed into the image of Christ, we need to bring this word with us as we go about daily life. Let's uh, turn to Psalm 1 with me. Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The psalmist speaks of those who not only read the word, but meditate on the word day and night. That means always. When we read the scriptures carefully and frequently, it sticks. It starts to get in our head. And then as you go about life, you carry the special promises and precious truths of the gospel with you to let them be a comfort, to let them guide your behavior, to keep your minds on the things above rather than the things beneath. Going back to Psalm 119 for a moment, the psalmist asks a question in verse 9. Psalm 119, verse 9. He asks this. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a pretty important question. By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Note that he treasured it in his heart. 
Treasure is something that you find valuable, something that you find worthy of holding on to. Store up the treasure of the word in your heart so that when the temptations of sin come over you, you can look to the treasure of the word and your sin will look worthless in comparison. Why pursue the ugliness of sin, the despicableness of sin? We see the world being destroyed around us because of sin, and why would we participate in that when we have the treasure of the word to be looking to, when we have the treasure of the word in our hearts? The third way to use the word as a means of transformation is to be under the regular weekly preaching of the word of God. Again, we have to stress at this point the importance of the local church. You need to be intimately involved in the local church. God has given us the Lord's day as a time to hear the word specially proclaimed to his people. Your private readings of the word throughout the week are like your daily bread, which sustains you and nourishes you, that's to be sure. But when Pastor Nick gets up here each week and heralds the word of God, this is your weekly feast. Now, I'm sorry if you don't feel like that this morning, but Pastor Nick will be back soon. But as the preacher puts hours of toil and study into delivering to the people a message of refreshment, a word we should give diligence to thinking on, not just as he's preaching, but throughout the week as well. In some sense, our whole lives should be oriented around the Lord's day as we, a hungry people, press on to be fed on the Lord's day. Again, we should be praying for our pastors for this reason. We need to be diligent in prayer for Pastor Nick in his studies so that he can come and feed the people of God, that he can come to feed the sheep of God. Now, the fourth way to use the word as a means of transformation is to sing the word. Now, I'll admit I'm a latecomer to this but I'm trying my best to be reformed in the area. I never realized until recently that for the entirety of the Christian church, pretty much, until maybe, I don't know, 100 years ago, Christians regularly sang the Psalms in public and private worship. This was common fare. I mean, they had, of course, yes, modern hymns, modern songs. There's nothing wrong with those. But the Psalms give us a divinely inspired directory for public worship. With the Psalms, we aren't merely singing praises to God, but we're singing God's word back to him. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3 for a moment, if you'll turn there with me. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So, as the elect of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you forgive. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. We read here that we are to have the word or doctrine of Christ dwell in us richly. That word dwell is the same word Paul uses in Romans 8.11 to talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us in such a way that it becomes our daily companion as we go about the things of ordinary life. When the glorious word of Christ comes to dwell in us, the most natural response, our desired response, should cause us to rejoice in the person of Christ by singing the songs of Christ. As you read the Psalms, you'll notice that the entire range of human emotion is expressed. In Psalm 124, 
You hear Israel praising God for thanks of their deliverance from their enemies. But in Psalm 88, you hear the psalmist cry out, asking God, why have you forsaken me? And it doesn't uplift at the end, by the way. It's not like there's a message of hope at the end. No, it just cuts off, full stop. Why have you forsaken me? That's how we feel sometimes, is it not? The Psalms address our human emotions. The Psalms meet, meet us where we're at, and they give us courageous words that we can sing to God. If he's inspired this in, our, in his word, we can sing it. Sometimes we think we're a little too pious to sing Psalms like that. Like, God, why have you forsaken me? Or God, you, fear far, you feel far from me. Where are you, O God? Sometimes we feel too pious to sing things like that. But through the Psalms, we have a divinely inspired way of communicating those emotions to the Lord. So, singing the Psalms again, and we did it this morning, by the way, in our 9 a.m. class, and it's a precious time of singing with the people of God the words of Christ, the words of God. There's something special about it. As we all call out our favorite Psalms, Psalms that uh, emotionally meet us, right? Not just emotionally, but where we are in life, they meet us. And it's a glorious thing to sing the Psalms, not only alone, but with the people of God. Whatever emotion, whatever state you find yourself in, flee to the Psalms. This was a regular practice, again, from the early church onward. It was really recovered in the Reformation. One of the first books Martin Luther translated into the German language. Again, remember, the Roman Catholic Church didn't want the Bible and the ordinary man's language. They didn't want that many disputes over doctrine, of course. You can't handle it faithfully. But as soon as Martin Luther started translating the Bible from Latin into German, one of the first books he translated was the Psalms. He wanted to restore to the people of God the songs of Christ. These are songs of warfare. These are songs of spiritual warfare that we should equip ourselves. These are tools on our tool belt to use as Christians in daily life. Again, singing the word with the people of God is a powerful thing. And that's what we're going to do now. As the worship team comes up here and leads us in Psalm 23. I hope you don't leave here today simply thinking about a list of things to do in response to the word. That's not my goal. Although, yes, there's been a call to pursue certain actions, I hope you leave here with hearts full of thankfulness for the glorious gift that we have in the Old and New Testaments. I'm sure it, uh, if it's responded to you uh, the way it's responded to me in my studies this week, it should make you rejoice in the precious gift we have in the Word of God. It's, a worthy, it's worthy of our embrace. It's worthy of our trust. And let's pray now for our time together. Father, as we thank you for the gift of your word, please let it dwell in us richly as we go out to live all of life for your glory. Use it powerfully in us and in our discipleship for the growth of your kingdom. We ask it, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. And amen.